Where do you turn when something bad happens? Who do you turn to when something terrible happens? I want you to go to the trouble of trying to think of somebody you would turn to. When you get the really bad news, when you've had the really awful day, when you've had the bad diagnosis or whatever it is that's come your way, where do you go? Where do you turn to? I think it's really interesting how we cope when we're faced with really bad times. It's almost like you can put a magnifying glass over somebody's personality and zoom straight in and get to see a lot more of what they're like in the bad times. I remember me and Jude hadn't been going out that long the first time we were in the car together, and I actually saw me do road rage. I don't know, that's probably not a great admission, but it, it wasn't, I wasn't really angry. I was just, it was a bad moment, and I reacted badly. And it was like she shone, a, you could see a microscope into the true character of my life. Because how we react in bad times is how we react. That's us. That's why we've got programs on the TV just at the moment called 24 Hours in A&E. Have you seen 24 Hours in A&E? Is it just me? There's a couple of people nodding their heads. I don't really like it, but it's our together time, me and my wife, so we watch it together. And it's incredible. In real adversity, the character that you're able to see in people, isn't it? People say things like, I didn't realize I loved him that much. I didn't realize that I couldn't get by without him, or I didn't know I had strength to deal with that. When the microscope of opposition comes into our lives, we get to see a really clear picture of what we're really like, don't we? I'm a bit of a World War II buff. I think I've mentioned this before, and in about 1939, so it's just before, so any of you who know your history will know the kind of time that I'm talking about now, just before the war, England is isolated, surrounded, it's on its own against the might of the German Empire. And there is the crumbling cities. And if you look down on a map, and I, I see, this is brought to mind because the film Dad's Arm is about now, and you can remember that map where the Germans are all around us. The Americans hadn't joined us yet. The Russians weren't allied to us yet. We stood on our own, and it was desperate. It was desperate. We were oppressed. Our adversaries were there, and we were or we should have been scared. But in that opposition, in the face of that surrounding terror, looking round at the recent defeat at Dunkirk and the crumbling cities, the people showed some British spirit. And now we look back at it nostalgically, and our governments will kind of claim it as their own. And the country showed resolve. It was like you could zoom the magnifying glass down over the British people in this adversity and see some... I don't know, Eastern Spirit, East End Spirit, Blitz, the Spirit of the Blitz, that's what they called it. And we even sang a song about it, and I'm reminded of it because Dad's arm is out. Who do you think you are kidding, Mr. Hitler? Do you know that song? That came out of the East End. And think about it, Hitler is bombing everybody to bits. He's the force, he's the power, and we are cockily, arrogantly saying, who do you think you're kidding, Mr. Hitler, if you think old England's done? We are the boys that are going to stop your little game we are the boys that will make you think again. And our soldiers are stood there with staffs or trowels instead of guns. And we've got no food to eat. And our cities are bombed to death. And yet, in the face of this huge opposition, we get to see the spirit of the people and what we really depend on as a nation. That's the kind of thing I want us to be thinking about as we go into the talk. Nehemiah went back to Jerusalem and it was oppressed and surrounded 
at every side. Every side. The people were, and, and the chat and the conversation, as you'll remember for the readings, I don't know if it's possible to put that first part of the text up. All the opposition that they faced was saying, you're threatened with death. We're going to come after you. We're going to get amongst you. You are flawed. This is not going to work out. The opposition was everywhere. And the question that I want to ask you, that I want you to have resonating in your minds, is where did the people turn to? What was their hope in, in spite of this huge opposition? And I guess I want you to try and do it through the, through the mind's eye of a, a soldier builder. So they were building the walls, and they were soldiers as well at the same time. I want you to try and think about this soldier on the walls of Jerusalem, looking out to the horizon, beads of sweat dripping down his face through fear, the sun coming up at daybreak, and he's looking out to the horizon for fear of the enemy. He's hearing his wife talking about the stories of this opposition that is rising up and rising up. Where is his hope in? That's the question. Where are the people of Jerusalem's hope in? Where is our hope when we face difficult times? Let's get back in the story. And I want you to notice the way that these people are opposed. And what I find interesting as I, uh, as I look through this is we've, we're two and a half thousand years down the line and it's the same kind of insults that we face as Christians, isn't it? It's quite interesting that the enemy's not come up with anything new in that time. The, the insults are the same. Listen for them. When Sambalat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews. And in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish it in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Even a fox climbing up on it would break down their wall of stones. It's interesting, isn't it, as we go through it, the kind of critiques that come their way. Feeble Jews. Do you get that kind of criticism? Is that, is that how you're made to feel sometimes as a Christian? That it's a feeble choice? That it's an easy choice? Sometimes I want to say when, I, when, I, when we criticize like this, this isn't easy for me. This wasn't, I didn't choose this life because it was a, as a crux. I didn't choose it as an easy option. This is really difficult. But that is the way often Christians are made to feel feeble. Can they rebuild their wall? Then listen to what they get at. They get at the, the foundations of God's wall and God's city. Even a fox could break it down. What they're saying is, even a fox could climb this, this wall that they've built up. Even a fox could, could jump on it and crumble it down. People today attack the foundations, the very foundations of our faith, don't they? Scientists would endeavor to do that at every turn so that we can't even get a foothold. Endeavor to attack us on the grounds that you know, you believe in the Bible, this book, that's, that's what you're going to build your faith on? That's your confident place? That's, what your, that's, that's your security? The church, the leaders of the church, this is where you're looking for your security? And they attack it and they say, it's feeble, it's going to fall down. They were angry. I think it's interesting that they thought that they were angry about this. It's really odd, isn't it? That's, that's, it's a reaction that I struggle to come to terms with. I can perhaps understand some of the other opposition, but anger is an odd one, but it's true, isn't it, in our lives? Sometimes the reaction to our faith, and the reaction in this instance was that actually they were doing really well. They worked with all their might and all their hearts, and in no time at all, the wall 
was half built. Now, I guess that depends on your perspective. Some people say the wall was half finished. Some people might say the wall was half empty. But the people reacted angrily as they saw God's people make quick progress. It's funny, isn't it, that that's a reaction we have to put up with. Anger. We will kill them and destroy their work, they say. I think it's an interesting picture that's evidence for us. And it's a helpful picture for us as a church that they had two, they had a bit of a dilemma. Do we be faithful? Because think about it, the opposition's right there. How can they defeat the opposition? What can they do to get the opposition off their backs? There is a way that they can do that very easily. They've got one option. They could stop building. They could stop being faithful to God. If they did that, the opposition would go away. It's a dilemma for us, I think, as Christians that we face similarly. As we seek to establish God's kingdom, as we seek to represent his rule and reign in the world, as we seek to look different, as we seek to build up his walls, we walk into opposition. Don't tell me that you've not faced that in your workplace as you've kind of stuck out for God or you've tried to show a slightly different way of approaching a situation that reveals God. We soon face opposition. And we have a dilemma as, a, as God's people. And often, and I was reflecting back on my own life, I guess it's better to point the finger at yourself than anybody else. Often, when I've taken those few steps, I guess when I've put those first few bricks on the wall, and the opposition's come up, and I can see people being aggravated, and I can feel the sort of tension... I don't like that. Something in my personality struggles with that. And sometimes we withdraw, don't we? It's interesting what what the reality of being a Christian in this world is and what it brings you. Should we be surprised at opposition? Should we be surprised that opposition comes our way? It must have felt a lot like this was the wrong thing to do. Given all the mourning and grumbling that was going on from the people, there must have been voices in the city of Jerusalem saying, I'm not sure we've got this right. Every, you know, There's threats coming everywhere. The people are really struggling to even lift a brick. They're exhausted just looking at a brick. Maybe we've got it wrong. And the opposition builds and builds and builds. I think it's interesting that it's a constant theme within the Bible. We shouldn't be surprised when we are opposed We call Satan our adversary. We call him the accuser. And if you look and read through your Bible, at every point of Christian progress, there is the story of the devil at the same time, accusing and opposing at every turn. Should we be surprised when we are opposed? Peter says to us, don't be surprised when trials come. Don't be surprised. Don't think that something strange is happening to you. That's what we think, isn't it? This is strange. Why is this happening? Surely this can't be God's plan. This can't be what's right. Don't be surprised. It's not a strange thing. It's quite a logical thing, I guess. Jesus said, people will hate you because of me. We're supposed to be, and that is the emphasis I'm going to put on this talk so that we're challenged. We're supposed to be light in a dark world. We shouldn't be surprised that our light annoys darkness. We shouldn't be surprised that people spot us. It's logical that they should spot us. We should stick out. They should see us. Of course, there'll be opposition. 
how long is it since you've been a teenager? Can you remember being a teenager? Can you remember that far back? I, as I was preparing for this, I thought, man, I'm 20 years past being a teenager. That's ancient. Can you remember back to being a teenager? Can you remember that moment where you chanced your arm with a risque outfit? You were upstairs, you were going out for a night with your mates, and you sort of embraced your status as a teenager. What it means to be a teenager is to be cutting edge and a little bit near the borderline, or well over, you know, well past the borderline. And you put on the outfit, and it's a short skirt, or it's a, I don't know, a low top, or whatever else. Try and banish that image from your mind. It's a risque outfit. Let's just leave it with risque outfit. If we can edit that out, that would be brilliant. So you're at the top, you're at the top of the stairs, because you don't know who's listening, do you? You're at the top of the stairs, and you're thinking about coming down the stairs, and I'm a parent now, so this is heading my way, and your parents are at the bottom of the stairs, and you're walking. Do you remember, do you remember these moments? Have you done this? And you're walking down, and you're thinking, I wonder if I'm going to get away with this. I wonder if this look is going to be acceptable. And particularly the dad says something like, and I'm working on my stern face while my girls get bigger. You're not going out like that. You're not wearing that. You look, or if it's guys, this is what I got from my dad, you look ridiculous. That's what I got. Have you got aftershave on? What are you expecting? What are you expecting, lad, with aftershave? And you just, and there's this opposition at the bottom of the stairs. There's this clear opposition. It's interesting, isn't it? Do you go away having faced this opposition and think, well, I must have got this teenage thing wrong. I must have got the wrong outfit. I must have, you know, I've blown it. My parents obviously think I've made a mess of it, so clearly I've got this thing wrong. That's not what happens, is it? You think, actually, I've got this right. I've nailed it. If my parents think that I look too ridiculous, then actually I've absolutely nailed this look. And what you go on to do then, when you get out with your friends on your night out, you say, my dad thought I looked ridiculous. You wear it as a badge of honor. I had to put an overcoat on. An overcoat? What? A big coat, sorry. I'm 37. Put an overcoat on and sneak out. And you wear this opposition as a badge of honor. And what it does actually is affirm you've got it right. Should we expect opposition as Christians if we look different? Should we expect it to be an easy path? Should we expect everyone just to go say, yeah, that's fine? No. It's really logical that there's opposition in our lives. And let's be challenged because often what I do when faced with opposition is shy back and hide and walk away. Let's remember that Jesus said, no, this is going to be We shouldn't avoid the difficulty. We should remember that it's probably logical that it happens. I'm going to self-edit. I'm going to skip a bit. So you're lucky. Could have been a lot longer, the sermon. We're going to skip over a few points. Let's get back in the text about verse 13. Therefore, I stationed some of the... And I want you to think about the kind of journey. Sorry to jump about. I want you to think about the kind of journey that the people have been on up until this point. Think about how... Um, dispersed and disunited the people were and how unfocused they were to live in this ruin for so long. I want you to think about this sort of people, disunited, dispersed, unfocused, fairly unmotivated, and then read with me the account of, and think about the journey that these people have been on and the change that we now see as they are faced with this huge opposition and sharing this vision of Nehemiah. That's the, that's the picture. They're very acutely aware. We've thought about this opposition that is all around them. That's in play. And Nehemiah sharing this vision. Think about the journey that they've been on. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall. 
at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. From that day on, half my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. Just think about how far these people have come. They've gone from not being able to really do anything or be motivated to do anything to be able to do two things at once. The only two things I can do at once, I use a knife and fork, and I think that's because I'm really focused on getting the food into my body. These people changed, completely changed around to be able to do two things at once, to build and be prepared to fight. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread about, and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. I don't do the lottery, but if I did and I won it, I would buy a guy to stand next to me with a trumpet. I think that's a really cool thing. Do you know what I mean, don't you? Just to have there all the time. Now, am I saying that? This guy is with me. Now, I want you to think about why. Why has he got the trumpeter with him? So we continued the work with, well, with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. At that time, I also said to the people, have every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so they can serve as guards by night and as workers by day. Neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon even when he went for water. There's a re- you know, the author is really trying to say this is a different bunch of people than what we had before. These are people who are, who are now completely engaged in God's battle, completely engaged in spiritual warfare. And they've gone from being apathetic and disinterested and exhausted at the sight of a brick and they are motivated with every ounce of their body to do God's work here. I think it's really interesting, the picture. Faced with the opposition, the people are motivated. It's not always the case. It's not always the case, but it's often the case that when we face adversity as human beings, we come together in unity. When we are aware, acutely aware of the opposition, we come together. Think about the floods that have recently passed us by. You could think about any natural disaster I can think of, really. And it's incredible. The consequence is that people come together and people help. I got a phone call from my brother just before Christmas, and he rang me up and said, Ash, can you get over here as soon as you can? The house is flooding again. And I was really thankful, actually, because the boot's always on the other foot with me and Dan. He always helps me out, and I thought, this is great at last. I can, this, I, this is in my skill set. I can scoop water. I can do that. So I shot over there, and the, and the rain is bucketing down, and, and it is a, it's a dramatic situation. It's, it's about three or four inches off going into the house and flooding. But when I got there, the street was full of people, full of people helping out, and, and covered in mud. It was, quite, it, was, it was quite a picture, just soaking with water, and covered in mud, and our Dan was stood there uh, with a cup of tea. Now, he had been very busy, but he, would, he was exhausted and reached the point where he had a cup. And I got there, and he said, do you want a cup of tea? I was like, yeah, okay, let's have a cup of tea. And, and I said to him, who's, who's this guy? He said, I, I don't know who he is. And him, and there, was a guy, there was a guy on his knees bailing out water, and he said, and that guy there, he's been here 20 minutes, and I don't know him either. They saw me faced with the opposition. It was really clear of my circumstance, and we became this fighting force against the flood. It was incredible to see when they were aware 
of the opposition. I think it's really helpful for us as Christians. Really helpful to know who the opposition is. To share God's vision and at the same time know who the enemy is. Because so often my experience and what I've seen is we get mixed up. We make enemies out of each other. Or we, we think the people out there are the enemy. Let's remember we are in a spiritual battle with a spiritual being who is out not just to make life difficult for us, but to get amongst us and kill us and end it. Let's be aware as Christ Church, as we go into the next six months of who the enemy is, with the hope that this awareness of who the enemy is will cause us to be focused and united. Nehemiah took a step back. We read that in the text. I don't know which verse it is, but he takes, he takes a step back and he takes like a managerial assessment of the situation. And what he sees is that this people that have been dispersed are going to function way better if they are united, if they are stuck together. So he grabs, there were families living out, I guess, outside of the city walls. And, he, and the picture is that they, they, everybody comes inside and the families fight side by side. And there's this incredible change in the outlook and the efforts of the people, they go from being really dispersed and, and, and what reads to me like quite selfish to being a unit, a real unit and a team. And, and what Nehemiah does, he says, we're not going to have any gaps here. We're not going to be porous people anymore. We are going to be united. I watched a, a documentary over Christmas. And yeah, I'm 37, as I've already explained. I'm getting older. This is, this is what happens. This is what's coming. If you're in your 20s now, you enjoy it. But in a few years, you'll sit down and you think, I'm going to watch a Penguin documentary. That's, that's, what I, that's how I'm going to get through the day. And, you, and at the end of it, you might even be crying like me. And that's, that's what happens. And I was watching this documentary. And as, you're watching, as I'm watching the Penguin documentary, what I'm thinking is, penguins have got it tough enough just being penguins. Just being penguin-shaped is, is enough to deal with, I think. I think all penguins should be put in a nice sanctuary and looked after. But you're that shape, and not only are you that shape, you have to live in a blizzard. That's where you live. That's your life. You live at minus 30 degrees. You're a ridiculous shape, and you've got the weather against you all the time. Penguins shouldn't exist. They shouldn't survive. And yet, that's quite a statement. I t- you can edit that one out as well. And yet, in minus 30 degrees, they thrive through their unity because they stick together. What they do is they huddle all together. And apparently in the middle of this huddle, once they huddle all together against the storm, in the middle of the huddle, it's about 14 or 15 degrees. And some of the penguins in the middle say, this is too hot. It's too hot for me. The unity works so well that they have to go to the outside just to get a cool down. Unity, really helpful, really works. I think the Bible paints a pretty consistent picture about how the church should function as a united body. I did the park run the other week with a saw toe. And I don't always do the park run anyway very well. But with my saw toe, just a saw toe, I could barely run. It put another five or six minutes on my time. Just a saw toe. The Bible describes his church. The Apostle Paul describes his church as a body. A body focused on Christ the head, working together as a unified body. I think it's a great challenge for us to see the lessons of Nehemiah, to see how the people functioned as a unified body and go forward. That's a good challenge for us, I think. I think it's a challenge for any church going forward. Let's be united as we go forward. 
the people were focused as well. Nehemiah got the people focused. Remember we talked about the guy with the trumpet and how I said I'd really like a trumpet? Well, the tactic with that was that they weren't going to let, the, the, wherever the threat came, Nehemiah would run over there, the dude with the trumpet would run along with him and he'd blow his trumpet and then everybody would get there. They'd, they'd changed from being a, quite a selfish bunch of people to have been a bunch of people that said, no, we're all in it together and anywhere that there is threat, we are going to endeavor to get there quickly. So if the enemy gathered at one side, Nehemiah bolted over with his trumpet. The trumpet was blown and they were there like a shot. There's a strategic determination just to be on it. A strategic effort to have no weak links. I think it's interesting the things that we, as Christian individuals and as church, the things that we tolerate. I guess I'll make the application about individuals just because we've talked a lot about church. Sometimes it's interesting, isn't it, that we just kind of let sin creep into our life in a way that we wouldn't let anything else slip like that. If we notice a slight discrepancy in our bank balances, we get on it. If there's a squeaky door in our house, most of us get on it. But when sin creeps in, sometimes we don't always have that focus. Sometimes we just kind of tolerate it. There's a great picture, I think, in Nehemiah that he just says, we're not going to let the enemy get any kind of a foothold here. We're all going to rally around. One of the things that's really encouraged me since I've come to Christchurch is that it feels like we're a church that rallies around. I, I get all the messenger information, and uh, I can't, I've stopped even touching the phone when they come up because Boydie keeps telling me I keep sending inappropriate thumbs up all the time. And I, I, it's only because I don't really know what I'm doing. But I see, I read through it, and I see this is amazing. This person's having a struggle and immediately the message goes out and there is feedback saying, well, we're going to pray about that. We're going to get onto that straight away. We're not going to let this just draw on. We are going to act and we are going to move as a church and we are going to pray about that. And I guess my encouragement for us as a, as a congregation, as a body of God's people is let's keep doing that and let's do that more and more. If there are some of us who are struggling, I think the Bible gives us good grounds to go and get amongst these people and help them out. It's a good lesson for us to learn. As we go forward, I'm going to skip a bit again. Really messed up with my notes and conclude. What does Nehemiah do to the people when they're faced with opposition? What does he do? What does he do with the people? There's that brilliant verse right in the middle, isn't it? Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. In the middle of the opposition, he points the people to God. Remember the soldier I asked you to think about and I said... What do you think he's talking about? How do you think he gets through the day? What's the song on his lips? How does he cope? Remember that? I want to read to you a psalm just now. And we think of a psalm perhaps a little bit differently to how often psalms were used. Psalms were often songs and songs that the people used a bit like slave songs when they were on the way somewhere or when they were doing a job. I want to read you a psalm that the children of Israel sang in fear of battle. And I want you to think about this soldier and I want you to think about how the children of Israel cope and what they were focused on to get them through this time of opposition. Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth give way, and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, and the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. 
she will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. It's great. It gives us a helpful picture of this guy's perspective. When, when you think about the threat that he faced, and yet he sings a song like this. It's really interesting, I think, that he sings a song about a river. I don't know if you've been to Jerusalem, but there's no rivers in Jerusalem. It's interesting that all the other empires round about that time, the Babylonians and the Assyrians and the Egyptians, all had these famous rivers that brought provision to the people. If you walk towards the capital of Egypt and you see the Nile, you just literally see the life that oozes out of the side of the Nile. just brings life. And you could sing a song about the Nile. You could see the people wanting to sing a song about the Nile because it clearly brings life. And yet, this is the perspective of the Jewish soldier. He can sing a song about a river that he doesn't have. He can sing it a bit like the spirit of the Blitz, kind of arrogantly, confidently. We've got God on our side. You can have all the man-made provision that you want. We have all our confidence that God will provide us with the victory. His focus, his hope, place that he turned to was God in times of trouble and all of his confidence was in him let's remember the Lord who is great and awesome a tiny bit of application just some stuff for us to think about I guess often this all feels very safe and talking about opposition here you all go away and think yeah I can do that I can I can be a Christian in the real world that's no problem but in the workplace when you're out socializing or whatever else it is, to be a Christian, actually, you are faced with opposition at every turn. I want to encourage you with this thought that when you are living a godly life, when you are trying to be Christ-like to your friends, when you are trying to witness and stand up for Christ, if that brings you opposition, I want you to be confident that God is in that. God is in that. So you don't stand isolated This is not an event that's going to be forgotten about in five minutes. This is an eternal event. You stand with the great and awesome God who threw the stars into space. Now, it doesn't always feel like that away from church, but I want you to be reminded of this truth, that as we battle in the real world for God, God is in it. God is with us in it. As opposition surrounds us, and it will remember the God who is great and awesome. When we become exhausted with building God's kingdom, let's think of the lessons of Nehemiah, pick up another brick, and get on with the job of building God's kingdom.